Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the great plan of salvation that you're working out here on earth. We thank you that you've given us knowledge and understanding of that plan, that you've made us a part of that plan. We thank you for the awesome role that your son plays in that plan. And we ask that you will use this study this evening to help us to understand his role better. We ask these things in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today there are people, even among those who claim to believe in the Bible, who say that Jesus is not God, and that in fact he never claimed to be God, and they claim that uh, this was just a later invention of the church, perhaps as late as the 4th century AD. Well, now that I've shown you how accurate and reliable the Bible is, Let's examine the scriptures and say if that's and see if that's what they really say. So tonight we're going to answer the question, why do we believe Jesus is God? Last time I used the acronym MAPS, M-A-P-S, for manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence, prophetic evidence, and scientific evidence. Tonight I'm going to use the acronym HANDS, H-A-N-D-S. HAND stands for Honors, Attributes, Names, Deeds, and Seat. Jesus shares the honors due to God. Jesus shares the attributes of God. Jesus shares the names of God. Jesus shares in the deeds that God does. And Jesus shares the seat of God's throne. So let's look at each of those in turn and see if if those uh, different lines of evidence do apply to God, to Jesus as God. Another way that you can look at this is in terms of, of the questions that a journalist asked. Back in the day when journalism was practiced in this country, (laughs) when a newspaper, uh, writer was writing an article, he sought to answer five basic questions, the the W questions, who, what, why, when, and where, okay? You can also think of examining the deity of Christ in these terms. Why? We'll, We'll arrange them in a little different order than you normally hear them, but it's the same questions. Why? This question asks for the significance of the person to others. When? This question asks that for the time when the person was present and involved. Who? This question asks for a person's name. What? This question asks for an account of the person's activity. And where? This question asks for the place where the person lives or was active. So we can take those five questions and we can line them up with with hands, with our acronym. The honors that Jesus shares with God are the answer to the question of why knowing that Jesus is God is significant. Perhaps the most basic question of all Christ's divine attributes is that he existed when creation began and in fact is eternal. The names that Jesus shares with God tell us who he is. 
the deeds that Jesus does with God tell us what Jesus has done. And that Jesus shares the seat of God's throne tells us where Jesus is. So we'll look at each of the items in that acronym HANDS in turn. First of all, honors. The honors that are ascribed to God are his glory, worship towards God, prayer, song, faith, fear, and absolute devotion, love and obedience, in other words. There are religious texts that ascribe glory to God. These are known as doxologies. There are doxologies in the Old Testament and in the New. An outstanding doxology from the Old Testament is found in 1 Chronicles. Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. When we turn to the New Testament, we see that there are also doxologies. But there's a, a certain change when we come to the New Testament. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might, and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So we see something happening here. We see greater instruction about the Lamb, the Son of God. When we look at the worship of Jesus, we find that the disciples worship Jesus, the angels worship Jesus, and eventually everyone will worship Jesus. This is talking about the incident that happened out on the Sea of Galilee. When they, the disciples, got into the boat. It, well, the disciples are in the boat, but Jesus attempted to walk on water to meet Jesus. And it didn't work so well for Peter. But when they, Peter and, and Jesus, got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. It is true that the, the practice of bowing down or prostrating oneself was very different in the, in the ancient world than it is today. We wouldn't think of, of bowing down or prostrating ourselves before someone because theoretically, at least, everybody's equal. But that wasn't the case in, in the ancient world. There were people besides your deity that you would bow before, that you would prostrate yourself before, because if you didn't, you might lose your head. So not everyone who came and bowed before Jesus is necessarily acknowledging him as a deity. 
But in this case, I think it's very clear that the disciples recognized the deity of Jesus Christ. They weren't just bowing before a respected teacher. They recognized that he was different. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. This is an incident that happened after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. When they saw him, they worshiped him. This is another case where the disciples worshiped Jesus. And this is more than, some, more than just the ordinary bowing. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So in, you notice that Jesus didn't discourage them from worshiping him. The angels also enter into this worship scenario. Worship him, all his angels. This is in uh, Psalm 96.7 of Septuagint. The numbering is slightly different in, in the English versions. But the writer of the book of Hebrews takes that passage from the Old Testament, worship him, all his angels, which is talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he applies it to the Son. Let all God's angels worship him, Jesus. So he's taking that Old Testament psalm about worshiping him, and he's applying it to the Son, to Jesus. One of the striking differences is... Uh, the results when John attempted to worship Christ and when he attempted to worship an angel. The response was very different. First of all, when he, Christ is, is uh, described in detail in glorious imagery. John tells us all about the appearance of Christ. No description is given of the angel at all. John really doesn't describe what he looks like. In fact, after he attempts to worship the angel and the angel rejects his worship, what does it do? Does it describe the angel? No, it gives us another description of Christ. John fell at Jesus' feet as a dead man. He didn't have to think about it. It just overwhelmed him, the awesome glory of, of, God, of Jesus. John fell at the angel's feet to worship him. In other words, John thought about this and said, well, he's, he's a guy of, of very high uh, status, so maybe I'd better bow before him. He thought about worshiping the angel. Jesus said, don't be afraid. So Jesus encouraged him in his worship. The angel said, don't do that. Jesus claimed to be the first and the last and to have the keys of death and Hades. The angel said that he was merely a fellow servant of John and his brethren. Jesus does nothing to redirect worship away from himself. The angel tells John to worship God. 
So the angel says, don't worship me, worship God. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses and others claim that Jesus and the archangel Michael are one and the same. But we see here that Jesus is very different from an angel. The angels worship him. And eventually, everyone will worship Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So eventually, everyone will worship Jesus. John Stott has rightly said, Nobody can call himself a Christian who does not worship Jesus. To worship him, if he is not God, is idolatry. To withhold worship from him, if he is, is apostasy. And we turn to prayer. One of the, one of the basic definitions of deity is, is a, a person or thing that we pray to, an object of prayer. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now this is shortly after the ascension and the disciples are meeting to select someone else to replace Judas. But even at this time, Shortly after the ascension, already they're praying to Jesus. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So this is Stephen, the first martyr of the church, the first martyr of the Christian church. He also is praying to Jesus. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. Once again, this is very early in the church's history. And at this trying time, we see Stephen praying to Jesus. And this carries through all through the New Testament, clear to John, the last apostle of the New Testament in the last book of the Bible. The one who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So he too is praying to Jesus. Another aspect of looking to, to the honor of God is that if someone that we sing songs to is our God. Someone when we sing songs about, we sing praises to. And Paul told us, told the Christians to be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts. So the early church was singing to Christ. And then in, in the book of Revelation, we find in the description of heaven, they sing a new song, 
you are worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for our God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made, made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. So we see that they are singing to Jesus because they are telling him that he was slaughtered and that his blood ransomed us. Next, we look at faith. Some blind men came to Jesus, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Now, if Jesus were just an agent of God, a representative of God, we would expect him to say, Do you believe that God can do this? But he didn't say that. He said, Do you believe that I can do this? Those who believed in his name became God's children. God sent Jesus to die so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we see that faith or belief is important in giving to, to Jesus the honors of God. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. Paul applies the words of Isaiah 28 to Jesus. So when, when Paul said this, as he, as he often did, he was quoting from the Old Testament. A verse about Yahweh, the God of Israel. But he applies it to Jesus. You shall fear the Lord your God. Next we look at fear. And that too is applied to Jesus. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. Fear is another aspect of honor. The honors of God. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Next we come to absolute devotion, love and obedience. Love me and keep my commandments, God told Israel. Jesus said the same thing to his followers. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Once again, this is absolute devotion. It's an unreserved commitment. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is the kind of absolute devotion that Jesus requires of his followers. Next, we look at the attributes of, of God. All the fullness of deity, preexistent, eternal, uncreated, immutable, omnipotent, omnipresent, 
and omniscient. Here's a helpful definition of what an attribute is. Attributes of God are qualities that belong to God's essential nature and that are found wherever God becomes self-revealed. They are those reliable character patterns that belong to God as God. And this last Sunday in in Sunday school, Eric uh, did a good job of of distinguishing between communicable attributes and incommunicable incommunicable attributes. Communicable communicable attributes are those that, that God shares with his creatures, even though to a lesser extent, of course, but such things as love and holiness and, and faithfulness. Incommu- incommunicable attributes are those that he does not and cannot share with his creatures. Things like being all-knowing, all-powerful, and eternal. All the fullness of deity. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Talking about Jesus. The whole fullness of deity. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That may seem kind of redundant, all the fullness, if it's full, how can it be all, you know, how can it be any more? But but the point that Paul is trying to make here is that there isn't one drop of deity that's absent from Jesus. It's all there. Another aspect of God is that God pre-exists. Jesus must have pre-existed if he truly was God. Paul says that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. People like uh, James Dunn deny the pre-existence of Jesus But even he has to admit that the the natural understanding that would immediately come upon you from reading this verse is that Jesus did pre-exist. Paul goes on to say that Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and that he was found in human form. Now, this is just less than 25 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. Already, we're looking at the pre-existence that was believed among his, his followers. Christ existed in the form of God in heaven before he became a man. James Dunn tries to say it can't really mean that, but even he has to admit that you really have to strain to to get around the meaning of that verse. Also, perhaps something you hadn't thought about before in regard to the preexistence of Christ. Christ said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus is claiming that he often tried in the past to protect Israel from judgment by sending them prophets, 
but they rejected the offer of help. So he's telling us that he is the one who tried to protect Israel in the past. And the metaphor of a mother hen seeking to shelter her chicks is familiar from the Old Testament. As you can see, there are many passages that use that metaphor of a hen protecting her chicks. Paul's statement about the, the Israelites in the wilderness tells us that Christ was involved in their earliest history, back in the time when they were in the wilderness. For they drank from, that, from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that and the rock was Christ. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. The New Testament affirms not only Christ's preexistence, but also his divine preexistence. Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him. And so they could not believe. Because Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Isaiah said this because he saw his, Christ, he saw Christ's glory and spoke about him. He spoke about Jesus, Isaiah in the Old Testament. Now, some people are willing to admit that Jesus preexisted, but some of the people who believe that he preexisted claim that he hasn't always existed. That at one point he came into being. The Jehovah's Witnesses describe him as God's junior partner. In other words, God brought Jesus into existence and then he did created everything else, but, but God created Jesus. In him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. He's talking about Jesus in him. Things visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus created all things, not just all things but one. All things come into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. Not even Jesus was created. Jesus created all things. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Jesus is the creator, the one who brought things into existence. In the beginning, Lord, you founded the earth and the heavens by the work of your hands. This is quoting Psalm 102 in the book of Hebrews. And once again, the writer of the book of Hebrews, as many writers in the New Testament, is applying that Old Testament passage to Jesus. 
another aspect of God uh, and Jesus being God is that he is immutable. He doesn't change. Malachi 3.6 tells us that for I, the Lord, do not change. But James tells us there is no variation or shadow due to change. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is immutable. One of the characteristics of God, one of the attributes. During his earthly ministry, earthly mortal life, Christ emptied himself and humbled himself in order to live a life of servitude. But we can still see his omnipotence in action. He turned five loaves of bread into enough bread to feed 5,000 men and their families. And he said this, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. So Jesus is making the remarkable statement that he has the power to resurrect himself. As a human being, Jesus possessed a physical body that always had a specific location. But we still see his omnipresence. Jesus told a man that his sick servant at home was healed, although Jesus never went to the man's home. A woman asked Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter, and Jesus told her that the demon had left the girl, although Jesus never went to the woman's home. Jesus gave Nathanael accurate information about his character and whereabouts, even though he had not previously met the man. In his resurrected, glorified state, Jesus once again fully exercises his omnipresence. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Well, there aren't just two or three in one place. There are two and three and more all over the world and Jesus is there in the midst of them he couldn't do that if he were not omnipresent go therefore and make disciples of all nations and behold I am with you always to the end of the age Jesus couldn't be with all of his disciples all of his followers all over the world unless he were omnipresent omniscient the gospels report that Jesus knew what other people were thinking he knew what the ancient people of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom would have done under different circumstances. So he not only knew the past, he also knew all potential realities. He knew that Lazarus had died before they received any word of his passing. He knew that Judas would betray him. He warned Peter that he would deny him three times, and that is exactly what happened. He knew that when he went to Jerusalem, he would be arrested, tortured, and killed. And he knew that he would rise from the dead on the third day. He knew that the Romans were going to destroy the temple before a generation had passed. In Jesus' resurrected, glorified state, the ability to hear prayers 
requires unlimited knowledge. In order to, order to sit in judgment on all humanity at the end of history, Jesus would have to know everyone's heart. Next, let's look at the names that are applied to Jesus. The name above every name, God, the Lord, meaning either uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament or Kyrios in the, in the uh, New Testament, the bridegroom or husband, the king of kings and lord of lords, savior, I am, and then the whole string of things, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. First of all, Jesus, we are told, is given a name above every name. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Jesus, Jesus' disciples perform miracles in Jesus' name. Early Christians performed baptism in Jesus' name. The New Testament teaches that salvation and its blessings come through the name of Jesus. The apostles and other early Christians were willing to suffer and die for the sake of the name of Jesus. The, na the name of God. And you'll notice that when I say names, I'm not necessarily talking about proper names. I'm also talking about titles that are applied to God. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the name God that title is applied to the Son. And of course, you, you all know of this one. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in that same chapter, no one has ever seen God. He's talking about the Father here. It is God the only Son. We're talking about God the Son now who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. So we see that the designation God can be applied to the Son. At the end of, of the book of John, Thomas, addressing the resurrected Christ when he confronted him, answered and said, My Lord and my God. He called Jesus his God. There are other places in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Obviously, we're talking about the son here because we're talking about purchasing us with his blood. The father didn't do that. The son did. The son is referred to as God. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? This is talking about Israel who is over all God blessed forever. So we're talking about Christ and we're calling him God blessed forever. 
But of the Son, he says, this is in the book of Hebrews, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's addressing the Son, and he says, O God. While we, were, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. With uh, many of these verses about God, about Jesus as God, there are a lot of issues that come up. And uh, I was hoping that I would be able to address some of those, but I can see that we're going to have to do that another time. Simon Peter, to those who have received a faith as precious as ours to the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. These are two very important verses where we read about God and Savior Jesus Christ. I do want to talk a little bit about these two. These two verses are of the construction article plus noun plus chi plus noun. Chi is the word in the Greek for the conjunction. In other words, and, as we would say it in English. So it's the God and Savior. It's not the God and the Savior. It's just the God and Savior. And whenever that construction occurs, something important happens. Sharp's rule goes into action. It's called Sharp's rule because a man named Granville Sharp discovered it. He found that when this construction, this, this, the article plus the noun plus chi or and, and then another noun, when this construction occurs in ancient Greek using singular personal nouns that are not proper names, nouns like father, lord, king, not words like that are proper nouns like Jesus, Peter, Paul. Whenever this happens, if there are singular uh, personal nouns, but not proper nouns, the two nouns normally refer to the same person. So that is important to understand that when those two passages that we looked at that talk about um, the God and Savior... that we're talking about the same entity, not two different entities, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and others would claim. Lord, Yahweh. John the Baptist's ministry of preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah, was a fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. Prepare the way of the Lord. But if you turn back to Isaiah 40, verse 3, the Lord that is talking about is Yahweh. So, so John is applying that to Jesus. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's Paul writing, but he's quoting Isaiah about Yahweh, the Lord. And he's applying that to Jesus. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth, 
and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. That's Paul in Philippians, but he's referring to Isaiah 45 about the Lord, Yahweh. He's applying that to Jesus. The imagery of a bridegroom or husband. For your maker is your husband. The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, is his name. It says in Isaiah. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That same imagery is used over and over again in the New Testament. He who has the, this is John the Baptist speaking now, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. So obviously he considered Jesus the bridegroom. I feel a a divine jealousy for you. For I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So Paul also used that imagery of the bridegroom or the husband and applied it to Jesus. And of course, in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, we read, For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Once again, we see that bridegroom imagery. King of kings and Lord of lords. You're probably quite familiar with Revelation 19.6. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed, King of kings and Lord of lords. But it's also in Revelation 17, in a in reverse order, here it mentions the uh, lords first and then the kings, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. But that statement is almost exactly the same as Daniel 4.37 in the Septuagint. They just add one more line here. Because he himself is God of gods and Lord of lords and King of kings. So it's almost the same. And it's applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament, but now it's being applied to Jesus. Savior. God is referred to as Savior at least 18 times in the Old Testament. The New Testament calls Jesus Savior in an ultimate cosmic sense. He is not only the Savior for Israel, which he is, but he is also the Savior of the world. Jesus is our heavenly Savior who saves us from sin and death. I am. In the Old Testament, the Lord commonly revealed himself with the introduction, I am. I am God Almighty. I am Yahweh, your God. Or just, I am he. We see that over and over in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. This is almost an exact quote from Isaiah 52.6. I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Jesus said before Abraham was born, I am. 
when soldiers came to arrest Jesus? He replied, I am he. John expects his readers to understand that Jesus' words on these occasions were not mere identification. They were claims to deity. First and last, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, am he. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. That is Yahweh speaking in the Old Testament, in Isaiah. Revelation applies that title to Jesus. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. The first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Jesus is applying that same verbiage to himself. We look at the deeds of God, creating and sustaining all things. These are things that God does, sovereignly ruling over the forces of nature, providing the way, embodying the truth, serving as the source of life, and finally, judging all people. We are told repeatedly that Jesus is to be identified with the creator of the Old Testament. Not only did he get things going, started, but he is responsible for their continued existence. He's responsible for keeping them going. So Jesus creates and sustains all things. Sovereignly ruling over nature. The complete and total command that Christ exhibits over the natural realm in his miracles reveals his deity. He tells his disciples precisely where to lower their nets to catch a large haul of fish. He commands unclean spirits, and they immediately obey. He heals all manner of diseases. That was certainly a big part of the ministry of Christ when he was here on the earth. He calms a storm on the sea. That's one of the striking miracles that he performs that displays his control over nature. He feeds multitudes with meager supplies. He raises the dead, including himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is not merely the way shore. Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of uh, Christian Science, claimed that Jesus was the way shore, and he just showed the way. But he's not merely the way shore. He is the way. Only he could accomplish the restoration of human beings to a relationship with God. He achieved this salvation through his death and resurrection. Jesus regarded himself not as someone who merely spoke the truth, but as the very embodiment of truth. He spoke by his own authority. He preceded his statements with amen. He didn't need others to confirm the validity of his statements. He did it himself. Jesus is the source of our way of eternal life. 
But beyond that, we find the very beginning of life, the very meaning of life, in a relationship with him. Jesus invites us to find a, a quality of life with him that we cannot find elsewhere. In the way, the truth, and the life. Lastly, judging all people. God validated this truth that Jesus is coming back for us through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Everything will be made right. The dead will be raised. Jesus' role here is not a passive one. He will decide who enjoys eternal life and who suffers eternal condemnation. Jesus' sentence will be final. There's no appealing his decision. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus, received, Jesus as the Son receives the same honor as the Father. Lastly, we look at the seat of Jesus on God's throne. God's highest possible throne. We see Jesus claiming to be equal to God. We see Jesus ruling over all things. And we see Jesus ruling forever. Jesus Christ is the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. So you don't get any higher than Jesus has ascended. He is the one who is over all things. When Jesus was on trial before Caiaphas, he was asked if he was the Messiah. He replied, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest instantly recognized that Jesus was claiming equality with God. Because he knew where those two statements came from. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Those are Old Testament phrases. The high priest knew what that meant. He knew what Jesus was claiming. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. All things. Jesus rules over all things. Let's suppose that you meet somebody that you hear, he's the President of the United States. And you're not sure that if he's the President of the United States. He, he, you hear that he lives at the White House, but that doesn't necessarily make him the President of the United States. There could be other people, there are other people living at the White House besides the President. And you find that uh, military officials salute him, well, that's an indication, but that's not necessarily an indication that he's the President of the United States. And he signs up legislation into law. But he could be a governor. Governors also do that. So you're not, still not sure that, that he's the President of the United States. But if he lives in the White House and he's saluted by the 
chair of the Joint Chiefs, and he regularly sits behind the desk in the Oval Office, and he responds affirmatively, affirmatively when addressed as Mr. Mr. President. See, that by itself wouldn't prove that he's the President of the United States because he might be the President of a corporation, he might be the President of another country. And he signs federal legislation into law. If he does all of these things, then you can be pretty sure that he's the President of the United States. The same thing with the various aspects, the various lines of evidence that we've looked at for hands. You might be able to say that, well, just one of those lines of evidence doesn't necessarily prove that Jesus is God. But when you see all of them together lining up and Jesus fulfilling all of them, then it's a pretty sure thing that Jesus is God. Some, some might say, well, you're, you're just taking isolated verses of Scripture and you're just cobbling together a, a composite image of Jesus that isn't supported by any passage in the New Testament. But I would like to direct your attention to four passages in the Bible where all of these five lines of evidence come together. The first one that we want to look at is in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in, in verse 17, we see the honors of God being given to Jesus. They worshipped him. In verse 20, we see attributes of God. Because as we saw earlier, he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, if he's going to be with all of them all over the world, then he must possess the attributes of God. In verse 19, he talks about making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we see him taking the name of God. In verses 19 and 20, we see him performing the deeds of God. He's, ma he's making commands. He's um, telling them to go. He he's giving them the, the commandments of Christ. And then finally in verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we see that he's taking the seed of God. So we see all of, all of those lines of evidence in that passage. The next passage we want to look at is the first, in the first chapter of John.
In this passage, we see the same thing happening. In verses 6 through 8, 15 and 12, we see um, the honors of God going to Jesus. Where it talks about Jesus being the light. And one of the, one of the uh, honors that, that, God ha- that Jesus has as God is, is the glory. So we talk about him being the light. In verses 1 through 3, we read about attributes of God. In beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was in, in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Over in verse 14, we read about this son being full of grace and truth. Down in verse 17, when the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he, he possesses the attributes of God. And of course, back in verse 1, we, talk, we read the part about Jesus, about um, the word was with God and the word was God. So he definitely is God. Down in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, talking about the Father, the only God, the Son, who who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Son has made the Father known. So he's taking the names of God. Back in in verses 1 through 3 again. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he's taking the, the deeds of God the greater. In verse 18, it says that he's at the Father's side. As we saw before, he's at the right hand of God. So once again, we can look at this passage in terms of those five lines of evidence that we were looking at. Hebrews 1.13 is the next one. Hebrews 1, 1 through 13. This talks about let all God's angels worship him. That was one of the first things that we looked at was Angels worshiping God. God is worshipped by these powerful supernatural beings. In verses 11 and 12, we read about one of the attributes of God. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So he, Jesus is immutable and, and uh, eternal. We see there in, in verses 4, 5, 6, 8, 10 that Jesus is called God. 
one of the verses that we looked at before, verse 8, talks about your throne, O God, is forever. So Jesus takes the names of God, the titles of God. Verses 2 and 3, he takes the deeds of God. talks about through whom he created the world. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Finally, the seat of God. Down in verse 13 it says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He did say that to the son. And the last passage we want to look at is in Philippians chapter 2. In verses 10 and 11, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And once again, that, that comes from Isaiah 45, but that's applied to, here to the Son, to Jesus. That honor is given to him. In verse 6, we learn about attributes of God. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was in the form of God. He had the attributes of God. In verse 9, we read that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. If his name is above every name, then he must be God. In verses 7 and 8, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he's performing the deeds of God, the deed of salvation, bringing salvation to mankind. And finally, in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So he's highly exalted. He's raised up to the highest possible throne in heaven. So, I think you can see that the Bible, which is accurate and dependable and trustworthy, as we've seen in our previous two lessons, tells us that Jesus is God. And we can have great confidence in that. We're a little bit over, but are there any Questions, comments? Well, if not, let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer.
Father, we are so grateful to you that you have intervened in our lives and opened our minds and made it possible for us to understand the great salvation that is offered through your Son. And we thank you for helping us to see that your Son is not just a mere man. He is not just a created being, but he is one that pre-existed, one that is eternal, and one that took the form of a man so that he could bring about our salvation. We ask that you would help us to understand this better and to share it with others. In his name, in Jesus' name, amen.